the time to grab those. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be some in front of you, or if you're in the chairs in the back beneath you, um, underneath your seat. Um, we're going to spend some time in Luke 15 today. Last April, I performed, uh, I officiated a wedding. Uh, it was Paul and Michelle Moore. I'm glad they're here today as we get to recount this uh, memory. Uh, because there are a few responsibilities to officiating a wedding that I didn't know about before I did my first one several years ago. Uh, but one of the things I learned is that one of the most important things is the handling of the marriage license. Uh, it's actually the responsibility of whoever officiates the wedding to get the signatures and fill out the license and mail it back to the courthouse. And this always makes me incredibly nervous. Um, because most weddings occur on Saturday and often in the afternoons or evenings. And so there's no mail service on Saturday evenings, there's no mail service on Sundays, and most of my Sundays, given the line of work I'm in, are, are so hectic that there's actually a chemical released in my brain that destroys all memories of things I have to do in the week to come. Um, but this time for Paul and Michelle's wedding, I was determined that was not going to happen. And so I put a to-do list on the desk in my office, I put a to-do list uh, uh, beside my bed at home, I put a reminder on my phone, I was on top of it. And sure enough, first thing Monday morning, I grabbed that license, I put it in an envelope, I slapped a stamp on it, and put it in the mailbox, and I walked away from that mailbox so impressed at how adult and responsible I am. And then three weeks pass, and I get a call on my phone, it's Paul, and the courthouse is saying they've never received a wedding license, a marriage license. I said, well, it's got to be there. I, I remember specifically, Monday morning, I put it in the envelope, I mailed it. Maybe they're slow, maybe they're behind. Let's just give it some time, Paul. I know it's there, okay? Another week passes. I hear from Paul, courthouse still saying they haven't got it. And so now I'm angry, right? And so I, I ask for the number. Uh, I ask for whoever's been calling them, contact them. So I call the courthouse, and they don't answer, so I get their voicemail. And I try to be as gracious as I can. I say, I'm, listen, I'm calling on behalf of Paul and Michelle Moore. And they did get married, and I did perform the ceremony, and I mailed that thing in two days after the wedding, and so I don't know what's happened between now and then, but you, but you and I need to have a conversation to how we can fix this. And so I left them my cell phone number and asked them to call me so that we could work it out and they, they, they would leave Paul and Michelle alone. And so I waited one day and two days and three days and four days, no phone call, no solution, still no anything. And so I'm just getting more and more frustrated. So I come in the office that week, and, and, and the next, that following weekend, Brian and Andy Long were getting married, and so I type out their ceremony, and I print it out, and I grab a slim black binder from my office that I use at weddings, and I open it up to slide in that ceremony, and what do you think's in there? It's the marriage license for Paul and Michelle Moore. It's been sitting in my top left desk drawer the entire time, and so I'm, now I'm in a panic, and I drive straight to the courthouse, and I show them the license, I tell them what happened, and so they're fixing everything, and I say, by the way... Why didn't you call me? I know it's irrelevant now, but I I gave you my number four days ago, and I haven't received a single phone call about this. And she said, yeah, I've called you every day. You just haven't picked up. Well, I hadn't received any calls on my phone, so I asked her to show me what number she had been calling. And as it turns out, when I left the voicemail, I gave them my old cell phone number uh, that I had before this one. And so I just killed this thing from start to finish, right? I mean, I just knocked it out of the park. And, and, and even today, there are still a couple unanswered questions in my head. And the first one is this. What in the world did I mail to the courthouse? <laughs> right, what random piece of paper did I stuff in that envelope, and how confused was the person who opened it? Um, I, I'd still, I'd like to know the answer to that question. I don't think I ever will. Um, but it's just really easy to get something wrong. It's really easy. No matter how hard we try, and I'm not alone on this. 
For instance, this is a good example. Did you know that there are human beings made in the image of God, created with the capacity for intelligent thought and, and gifted with his discerning spirit between right and wrong, who still find it reasonable and okay to root for the St. Louis Cardinals? I, I don't get that, right? Did, did you know that, that there are people out there that still think country music is an acceptable form of art? I'm talking about people with at least a, a semblance of taste and dignity and class. Okay, well, none of those people like country music, but still, there are people out there that like it, right? It's just an unexplainable mystery to me. But you see, to, err, to, human, to be human is to err, right? And for none are perfect. And this presented a unique challenge for Jesus whenever he taught. It was Jesus wasn't just teaching random lessons, right? It was his life, it was his teachings, it was his sacrifice, death and resurrection that would establish the kingdom of God and that kingdom is still in place today and it will be for all eternity. And so if you've ever taught or you ever even just shared a story or opinion, you know that sometimes what you say is taken in a different way by your hearers than how you intended it. But what Jesus was teaching us was the most important things ever. He was teaching us the kingdom of God. He was telling us who God is and how we had to respond to it. And so he couldn't have uh, the air being there. He knew that his lessons had to be timeless. And so a strategy that he employed was often to tell stories. Because stories stand the test of time. Stories can be passed from generation to generation. Stories speak to people of all backgrounds, all races, all levels of education, all ages. Stories just have a way of carrying truth timelessly that non-stories can't. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight writes, Jesus told parables to confront people with the character of God's kingdom and invite them to participate in it and live in accordance with it. This, these last few weeks, Mark has been leading us through Jesus' teaching on prayer in Luke 18. In, those, in that section of verses, there are two parables, two stories. And for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at Luke 15, one of Jesus' most famous parables. It's the story of a father with two sons, and in it we will be struck by the heart of the father in spite of the repeated failure of his sons. So look at me in Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 11. Luke 15 verse 11 says this, To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now. Before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. And I remember these parables, these stories are designed to teach people about God's kingdom and invite us to participate in it. And Jesus opens this parable by telling us that a young man had two sons. And the youngest of his two sons come to him at the start of the story with a request. And the request is this, I want my share of your estate. I want my inheritance. And I want it now. I don't, I don't want to bother around, wait until you die. I'd, I'd like that now. And at best, at its very best, this would be an awkward conversation in our day, wouldn't it? Think about you going to your dad, you saying, listen, pops, you know, you look pretty good. Your last physical, the doctor checked out okay, you don't have this habit of skydiving, I'm kind of wondering when you're going to kick the bucket. And since it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon, can you just go ahead and give me what you're going to leave for me when you do? Even in our day, that's an 
awkward, rude, and disrespectful conversation. But in the culture that Jesus tells this story, this would be scandalous and shocking. This is the younger son saying to his father, you are better off dead to me than you are alive. I don't want you. I don't want your relationship. I don't want to be around you. Just give me what's coming to me and I'm out of here. And the only thing more shocking than this request to Jesus' listeners would be the fact that the father granted it. This was a rude, arrogant, disrespectful, and unloving request, and the father responds with grace. He will not force his son to stay. He will not compel him to respect him. He knows that love, by its very nature, is an act of will, and so he cannot force that on his son, and so he plays the role of giver and provider as he always has. And his youngest son takes his money, takes his inheritance, sells the land, gets the money, takes all he has, and he bolts, and he moves away. And Jesus says he moves far away. See, it wasn't enough to go to the next town over. No, he was doing more than moving. He's rejecting his identity as a member of the family. He's removing himself from any connection to his father at all. And when he decides he's far enough away, he starts to live it up. We're given almost no details by Jesus, only told that he wastes his money in wild living. We can probably figure out those details on our own. And his plan's working. He's got his money. He's got his freedom. He has his lifestyle. Life is good. And then it isn't. Because two things happen that this young son didn't plan on. Things happen in life all the time that we don't plan on, don't they? The first sort of wrench in his plan was that his money didn't stretch as far as he thought. Whatever he was doing in that wild living of his, it wasn't frugal. And one day it's all gone. At the same time that happened, Jesus tells us, a great famine sweeps over the land. So there's no way for him to grow food and he had no money to buy food. And he's in a really desperate state so he begins to starve. And he convinces a local farmer to hire him. To be, he's going to become this man's servant and slave. And his job is really important in the sense that it would resonate in the mind of Jesus' listeners. Jesus tells us this young man gave himself over to be this guy's servant and slave to feed pigs. And that he was so hungry that he longed to eat the slop that he was giving to the pigs. Now in the old covenant, according to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, pigs were considered unclean animals. And no Jewish male in Jesus' day would ever go near or touch a pig to save themselves from defilement. So to take a job feeding these animals... And then the desire to eat food that they have touched and been around would mean that this young man is being degraded beyond belief. He has hit rock bottom. And he could not go any lower. And it's at this point in the story where I think we get it wrong sometimes. Because I've heard it presented and and may even be guilty of this myself in years past that that we then make this a morality play where I'm supposed to stop at this point in the story and look at all you and say now you see what wild living gets you Jesus told you the story so that you would not go out and be one of those wild ones because if you decide you want to live the party life you're going to be feeding pigs in no time listen I, I believe there are real consequences to bad decisions I believe the Bible teaches that and I know I've experienced that to be true in my life If you make a series of terrible choices, you will reap what you sow. We can't get around that. But this is not a morality play that Jesus is telling us here. That is not the point of this story. 
Jesus' parables were always about the kingdom of God. And this young man made a decision. He made a choice that ruined the rest of his life. He set out willfully on a path that led him to destruction. And he did that long before he ever engaged in any kind of wild living. He did that way back at the beginning, even before the start of where Jesus picks up the story. He did it out in the fields, late at night, laying in bed, walking along and thinking to himself, what would my life look like away from the Father? What would it look like away from my father? He contemplated on it. He thought on it. He meditated on it. Think of the freedom. Think of the money. Think of the pleasure, he told himself. You can do this. You don't need him. You've got this. This is your life, not his. All up until the point where he worked up the courage to go to his father and say, give me my estate now. See, it was that idea. It was that belief, that notion that he didn't need his father that, that ruined his life. His father had provided his son with a home, an identity, and a purpose. He raised him and protected him. And it was never enough, not in the son's eyes. He thought that freedom existed away from his father. And so he left in the pursuit of freedom until he woke up one day broke, starving, and as a slave serving and feeding pigs. That's what freedom is away from the father. Jesus told these parables to teach us about the kingdom of God and how he interacted. And he told this parable because this is my story. And this is your story. Every one of us in this room today is the younger brother. And I'm not just speaking on a theological level and just saying that all have sinned. I'm saying that we all have this adept ability to convince ourselves that we don't need God. We don't need our Father. I I can do this. This is my life. These are my decisions. This is on me. I've got this. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And so we think and we move and we make decisions and set priorities and we go through our lives giving heaven one repeated consistent message. I don't need you. And the Bible teaches that because God created us, because the nature of his creation speaks to his glory always, that every human being knows deep down that he exists and is worthy of praise. And Romans 1 tells us that we've taken that truth and we've suppressed it and we've traded it for a lie. And we've replaced God with other things. We worship created things instead of the creator. And for some of us, it's wild living, sure. For some, it's money. For some, it's it's, it's career. For some, it's relationship or another human being. Most of us, most of us, it's just ourselves. But at the end of the day, what we bow down to, what we serve, what we worship is ourselves. You, me, everyone, we are all the younger son. Every attempt that we make to live life apart from God the Father, we are the younger son. And this plays out in two really unique different ways. The first is that we like to act like we know more than God. We never say that, we just act like it. We don't want to submit to a moral authority. We, we want to live our lives the way that we want to live them. And so we decide we'd rather do our own thing and be our own God. And what happens is we live and act and decide like we know more than God. We live like we know more about our bodies, like we know more about money, like we know more about pleasure, like we know more about control and sex than the God who created all those things. We live like we know more about life than the God who gave us life. And so we disregard his word and we replace it with human experience and the latest push of the culture. We dismiss the way of life that he calls us to as old-fashioned and out of touch and posture ourselves as as if somehow being born in the 20th century after makes us more intellectual than the God who created us. Few of us would ever say it, but we all live at times as if we're smarter than God. 
And the second way that we do this um, is that this can play out is when we feel like we don't need God because he already has enough of us. Phone rang earlier this year. It was a call from Cloverdale, and I answered, and the other line was my first boss. Um, he's the owner of the golf course in Cloverdale, first person to ever hire me. Um, he was calling to tell me that his wife of 51 years had been diagnosed with cancer, and the news was bad. They were just going to stop treatment, and they're bringing her home to make her comfortable, and it was just a matter of when, not if. So one Monday evening, I got in my car and drove there and went to their house, and I got to talk with his wife, Carol, about Jesus. I got to talk to her about the hope that we have in him, that it wasn't supposed to be this way. That sin is what has brought death and illness and cancer into this world, but that God has an answer and he has a response, and his answer is Jesus. Since Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we can't, and he died on the cross for sins and rose again, that Jesus says in John 11 that anyone who believes in him will live even if they die. And I was overjoyed when she told me that she did believe in Jesus. She did trust him for salvation and forgiveness. But later that night, I got to have another conversation. I was alone with Bob, my old boss. He was thanking me for coming. He's being very gracious. But I had to ask him, I said, Bob, what if it was different? What if the roles were reversed? What if you were in there on that bed with just days to live and Carol was out here in this room? Would you be ready? So he began to give me his view on spiritual matters and I pushed him to think deeper, think anew. I began to push him to think about the gospel and he finally cut me off and he said this to me. He said, you know what? I've loved that woman in there for 51 years. I've been faithful to her and I've been good to her. I've always tried to treat other people fairly. I'm a good person and at the end of the day, what more can God want than that? It wasn't the first time I'd heard something like that. Because people say this, they think this, they believe this all the time. I'm a good person. I was baptized when I was a kid. I'm a responsible, caring, loving parent. I'm a good student. I generally try to do nice things. I, shoot, I even go to church and volunteer. I drop some dollars in the plate. Look around. My life is way better than others. My kids are in a different category than others. Why wouldn't God be pleased with that? What more would God want than that? Well, the Bible says the answer to that question is Jesus. That Jesus is everything that we are not and everything that we need. He is holy. He is perfect. He is God. He created us and placed us and came for us. And then he suffered in torment and died on the cross for all the ways that we have let him down. And he proved that he was who he said he was by walking out of his grave. And so when we approach God with our spiritual resume and we tell God how good of a person that we are, we actually dismiss the death of his son on the cross on our behalf because we believe that we don't need it. It's not for us. And what happens is the person who believes they are smarter than God and those who believe that God already has enough of them both come to the same damning conclusion. I don't need you, God. And Jesus is telling us in this story, that is the crime. Wild living, sinful habits, bad choices, the ruined life, those aren't the disease. Those are just symptoms of the disease. The disease is when the younger son, the disease is when you and I decide that we don't need God. And by the way, followers of Christ, they're not immune to this. We too, we, we push back and rebel against God's authority. We too act like there are somehow asterisks in our Bible so that we read a verse that's really challenging and hard. We can look down the bottom and say, that, that one's not for you. We too fill our calendars 
so full without seeking his direction. We too set our priorities without seeking his input. We too invest insane amounts of time and money and energy into things other than his kingdom. We too ignore his word and don't invite his spirit inspection into our hearts and lives. And when we rely on decades of Christian living and, being, and begin to think that we've arrived as Christians when we see ourselves as more wise and holy than broken and in need of grace, then we say thanks for grace, God. Thanks for eternal life, but I've got it from here. I don't need you. And Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, that's the worst conclusion you can come to. The story is not over. Look at verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Those three verses right there are everything. This is the currency on which the kingdom of God runs. You want God to move in a mighty way in your life, you get right here where the younger son is, and he won't be able to stop himself. Jesus said that this young man finally came to his senses. He finally started thinking rightly for the first time in the story. And what hits him is that he comes to the realization that it's always better with the father. Even the servants back home, the hired servants have plenty to eat. And here he is on his own starving to death. And so he decides to go home, but he knows what he's done. So he begins to practice his speech. And listen closely to this heart. I have sinned against both heaven and you. He's owning it. He's owning his sin. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. He gets it. See, he's got no card left to play. He can say nothing in his defense. There's no argument that he can make to show himself worthy of being a son anymore. And he knows it. So his attitude is, I'm wrong and I'm unworthy and I'll just beg to be near you. Just let me be a servant. Let me be in the proximity of you. Because it's better to be near you. It's better at home than to be far away. In Psalm 51, David is writing, and this is what he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And what David is telling us about God there is this, that he is not unmoved by our brokenness. And when we humble ourselves before him, he can't help himself. And he comes to us and he just lavishes his love and his grace and goodness all over our heart that sees its need for him. The Bible tells us that all the way through it, it tells us that those who lift themselves up, those who feel accomplished, those who lead with their resume or walk with a strut, those who exalt themselves will be brought down. But that all who humble themselves before God will be lifted up by God himself. And this young man finally grasped it. He understood two very key things. He needed his father far more than he ever realized. And number two, he didn't deserve him. Jesus is teaching us in this story that our greatest need is something, especially, more specifically someone that we don't deserve. That you and I need God more than we need our next breath. But in that process of coming to realize that we will be struck by how little we deserve him. We're struck by how often we have formed our lives and made our decisions and set up our worlds by telling him to just butt out and leave us alone. And when it hit this young man, that is exactly what he had done. It broke him. So he would return home, but not with a strut. He would go back as a poor, broke, 
starving beggar simply asking for a handout. And Jesus has another powerful lesson for us in the story. Look at verse 20. So he returned home to his father, Jesus says. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet, and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found, and so the party began. I want you to see, I want you to really notice, I want you to observe what the father did here. Jesus tells us that while the son was still a far way off, his father saw him and ran to him. Now the idea of a Jewish man running in that culture uh, would have been seen as disgraceful. That was not dignified behavior. That was beneath them. You see, in this moment, the father doesn't care about any of that. Not only sees his son returning home, and the father's filled with love and compassion. He embraces him and kisses him, and he, the son begins that speech he's practiced. I've sinned against both heaven and you, no longer worthy of being called your son. And the father cuts him off right there. He's heard all he needs to hear. So he tells the servants, go get him clothes, go get him shoes, go get him a ring, go kill the fatted calf and pair because we are going to party. My son was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. And I think it's just as important for us to see what the father didn't do as well as what he did. He didn't just stand there and make his son walk all the way to him. He didn't make him give the entire speech. He didn't add to the punishment that his choices had already brought on. He didn't send a servant out to him and say, you know what? You look disgraceful. Clean up your act before you come here. Take a bath, get a haircut, get some shoes on, make yourself presentable, then you can come talk to me. No, he welcomed him first as he was, and then he did those things for his son. You see, what you need to know is this. You are the younger son. We all are filthy, rotten sinners in the presence of God, and the greatest need of our life is to turn to the Father. And if you've done that for salvation and forgiveness of sins, praise God, but the greatest need of your life is to continue turning to the Father. You still need him. You need him for your marriage. You need him for your career. You need him for your decisions. You need him for your direction. You need him for your purpose. You need him for your kids. You need him for your witness. You need him more than you could ever grasp. Your greatest need is to turn to him in brokenness and weakness and cry out for his grace and help. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I rejoice in my weaknesses because he got what the kingdom was ran on. And when you do... God is not aloof or indifferent or unaffected. When you turn, when you simply turn in humility and brokenness, he runs to you, Jesus says. He comes to where you are and brings you with him. There's no need to clean up your act before coming to him. There's no list of accomplishments that you can achieve before coming to him. Jesus, by telling the story, teaches there is only one entry requirement to entering his kingdom. There's only one requirement to experiencing life with the Father, and that requirement is brokenness. It is you recognizing that your greatest need is God and that there's nothing that you can do to earn, deserve, or achieve his presence and love. And Jesus is telling us that once you grasp that, you get everything. Once your mind wraps around that, you get everything. It's an amazing story that Jesus told. It has two major turning points. 
And the first turning point is when the son decided he didn't need the father. And all of the loss and all the shame and all the suffering and all the degradation that came after flowed from that decision. The second turning point was when he came to his senses and realized how desperately he needed his father. And all the robes and all the rings and all the fatted calves and all the parties and all the welcoming home came from that decision. And I'll close by asking you to find yourself in the story. Which turning point describes your life more? Which describes you more lately? Do you operate under the base knowledge that you are a desperate sinner in need of the grace of God, not just for eternal life, but for every single day you've been given? Or do you carry yourself day to day without giving him much thought? Without investing in his word as the mirror it is, without seeking his will through prayer, for your schedule, your money, your life. You're here this morning banking on, relying on some sort of spiritual experience in your past instead of an ongoing, vibrant, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Is your faith in Jesus or is it in your decades of going to church? Take, take a good inventory of your life. Are you living and carrying yourself and making decisions as if you desperately need God or is he just a toss-in? A label that you like to throw on top of your deal. Something that you deal with to think about on Sundays. Or is he not a part of your life at all? See, my hope and prayer is that all in this room, regardless of where you are, would come to your senses. That you would be convinced that you need Jesus more than anything else. And that would break you in humility. You would turn to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus told such a beautiful and moving story that has within it really convicting truth. And so God, as we bring this time to a close, as we, as we come together in worship, I pray that your spirit would move now. God, that you would convince us of our need for you. All around this room, you convince us of our sin. You convince us of the ways that we fail. You convince us of the fact that we can, know that we can never earn or deserve your presence and favor in our lives. But what you respond to is humility. Do that in us today, Lord. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're seeing one last song. These, uh, these altars, these steps, they're open for you. If you're, you're a follower of Jesus today and, and, you're, and he's putting fingers on areas in your life that you still treat as if you don't need him, this is your time right now to take this opportunity as we worship and praise him, to surrender that to him. But if, you're, if you are living under this notion that you don't need him, you've never felt you needed him, then I want you to be struck by two realities in Jesus' story this morning. And the first is that Jesus does not hide from the fact that you carrying yourself as if you don't need God will end in your ruin and destruction. And the Bible says that whatever ruin and destruction you experience in this life will pale in comparison to the ruin and destruction that you will experience for all eternity when you carry yourself as if you don't need God. And secondly, Jesus says, Jesus wants you to see how God runs to you when you turn to Him 
to save you and love you and redeem you. And so if you're ready today to give your life to him for the first time, that's awesome. So when we sing, we're going to invite you just, just to come forward. If you're, if you're shy, bring a friend with you. We don't care. We'll show you in the Bible how to give your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you do that, God will run to you. He will embrace you. He will forgive you and he will shower you with his goodness. So you come as we sing. Stand and sing.